Trigger warning, this podcast contains discussions about eating disorders, self-harm and suicide, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. and welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations with me, your host, Freddie Cocker. As you may know by now, each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. My special guest for this episode, listeners, is Claudia Van Nimwegen. Claudia is event champion, mental health advocate, theatre artist, public speaker and much, much more. In this pod, we discuss their autism diagnosis being more than a label, their experiences being sectioned and their non-binary journey. This is how our conversation went. Claudia, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been a long time coming, but we've got it sorted out. How are you and how are you dealing with the general madness that is the new normal? Oh, I'm doing okay. It's finally so nice to actually be on a podcast. Like we've been planning this for what, a year and a half has it been? Or has it been about two years? About that. The pod's been going for a year, so it must be almost as long as the pod's been going. (laughs) The world is mad, but I'm mad too, so it's fine. (laughs) We're all mad. We're all mad. For the listeners, we met at the launch event of a very great fellow mental health platform founded by Charlotte and Lauren and Charlotte's already come on the pod which is Mad Millennials isn't that right? Mad Millennials is absolutely brilliant yeah we met at that event it was their first event in London absolutely brilliant and since then I mean probably before that and then since then you've done loads of public speaking which will come on later on in the pod and just been a great fellow mental health advocate to know so we've got a lot to get cracking on with so shall we just do it? Let's get straight into it, Claudia, and talk about your journey. So first off, why don't you talk to me about your early life, where you grew up, your teenagers, and and whether looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? You know, who's the Claudia we meet here? So for me, you know, I grew up in Worthing, which is kind of near Brighton. So it's kind of quite metropolitan, quite up and coming. A lot of old people, a bit like Eastbourne, but <laughs> a bit more millennial. You know, growing up, I've always kind of been very different and never really fit into the social norms or the gender norms. In school, I would always run towards the puzzles instead of the dollies or the trucks or the tractors, you know. And I'd complete them within two minutes flat, just like that, just do a puzzle. And people would look at me and say, what? What are you doing? But I'd do the same one every single day in the morning when I get in. So it was, you know, quite repetitive. But I was quite distant from kind of other children and kind of young people my age. And I think being that distant led me to have this internal feeling of why am I so different? when all I really want to do is just try and fit in. Because when you see 20, 30 kids in your class, you know, you want to make some friends, but no one kind of would, even though I'd try kind of really hard. I think as a kid, you know, then growing up into kind of the more traditional schooling began, I was almost too outgoing. Like I wanted to try a bit of everything in order to try and find someone or something which I fit into. Because we all need something. All kids want to fit in, don't they? Exactly. Even if it's fitting, you know, in one place. It's it's something. And I started to get really, really angry. And it was anger towards myself and towards others. 
So I would just act out in these fits of rage when I was about eight, nine. And my parents picked up on it and they said, oh, let's take you to a GP. Let's take you to the doctor and see what we can, you know, do. I was sent to anger management classes as I was about eight, nine, ten, something like that. This was through like CAMS at my local CAM centre. And I went for two sessions and I wasn't allowed back. Wow. I mean, you can take that how you want, listeners. <laughs> well, I wasn't allowed back because I was too angry. Well, that kind of defeats the point of anger management, doesn't it? Exactly. I'm sorry, but if you've got a therapist who holds a tomato plant in front of you and says, squeeze the tomato and this is your anger coming out, I just threw the tomato at her. I'm not going to condone violence on this pod but i can understand your frustration because that seems to be quite a maybe not prehistoric but certainly not the right method you know i gave it a chance and i said okay good because you've got to give things a chance but really she was reading out of a book which i would have read in nursery in three minutes you know she could have been a bit more compassionate yeah compassionate but also a bit more not so much of an arsehole you know it wasn't really anger issues it was just suppressed emotion which i was trying to get out in whatever way i could so i got kicked out of that and then I didn't really know where to go after that I was kind of just oh okay I'll just carry on in life try my hardest do whatever I need to do to get by but it was quite funny because I then you know decided oh let's go to a school where people wouldn't bully me as much teachers included in middle school I got bullied quite severely by teachers because you know I was called the spider because of my handwriting are you, are you left-handed like me no I'm right-handed oh at least you avoided that no I'm not one of the 10% who's left-handed I don't know how you do it left-handed do you think that if you were in a more academic environment it would have helped you because you clearly were a very academic child you clearly were quite different but quite unique in a positive way and you were probably ahead of a lot of other kids when it came to kind of academic intelligence and kind of problem solving and stuff like that do you think being in a more academic environment would have helped you I actually surprisingly enough wasn't academic at all I was put in the lower set in school because I just didn't think that I could learn at the same rate as others. When I was, you know, 10, 11, I was doing work for eight or nine year olds. But even though I didn't skip a year of school or, you know, have to reset a year, I was still doing work at a much kind of lower level. But I think that's just due to the fact which my processing was so much different. I needed someone or something in order to support me in a way which I knew how to learn and not just in the way which they have to teach mainstream you know, a teacher teaching an hour long class has to, you know, get around 30 pupils. That's one minute a pupil, two minutes a pupil. You can't possibly give that attention to every student. And I just felt like, well, I've just got to try my best and do it on my own. But at GCSEs, I got decent grades. Well, I got, you know, C's, some D's, you know, but I kind of passed, which was more than I thought I'd ever would do. Because high school was completely, completely a terrible experience, you know, being physically and verbally abused by students and teachers, being told I'm not good enough, to having your geography teacher tell you we're going to beat your head, you know, for a school trip. Why don't you just jump off? It'll be easier that way because you'll never do anything in life. A teacher said that to you? Oh, yes. And this was in a Catholic school as well. So you'd think they would practice love. Kindness. Yeah, kindness. A bit of compassion, you know. But I only went to that school because I thought, and my parents thought, maybe they'd be a bit more kind, a bit more compassionate, a bit more, you know, love everyone. Nope. It was, you're going to hell straight away. You're, you know, being segregated. 
So were you religious during those years or were you an atheist in a Catholic school? I loved music. So I had to be part of a worship choir or whatever in order to do music. It was like the only opportunity to do something creative. I wasn't allowed to do art GCSE because I wanted to do sculpture and they said, no, you've got to draw or paint and that's it. It was very regimented of what you could do. You know, it was like attending the mass every week and whatever in the school and having to be there up the front in the choir because that was the only thing you could do to keep yourself positive but then you're being told behind everyone's back that oh actually you're not good enough for this so it's catch 22 isn't it yeah like I've never been religious but I feel like we've all got our own personal kind of spirituality in general which we all kind of have to find out for ourselves and if that's religion and believing in something a higher being then that's great for the people who believe in that you know if that gives you solace and comfort but for me I find being out in nature my mindfulness, meditation, all that kind of stuff is more spirituality rather than a set religion. For the listeners, you have diagnosed autism, which you've gone on a real journey of self-discovery with. Do you want to just set the scene first and tell the listeners about when you were diagnosed or when you first discovered yourself, you might be a bit different when your parents started to clock on, maybe teachers, and then how that fitted into your primary school, secondary school, and then your sort of adult experience? Yeah, so I, I always knew that I was different from about the age of four or five but then you know after all this anger issues happened and whatever I had like a counsellor in high school she didn't want anything to do with me either she said all sorts which is great you know again being let out by the system who was meant to help and give you those coping strategies and after that you know I was I'd got myself in such a state where I'd just about the age of 14 15 trigger warning coming up I'd started to you know turn that anger now internally and hurt myself in order to get those emotions out in whatever way I could and through self-harming that was kind of more of a release for me so I'd do all sorts of things but I think the main thing for me was to not eat and that was really kind of difficult because I'd think I don't need to eat because I want to just fade away slowly instead of have a quick exit into life it was more kind of just fading away so that I could still maintain this image of someone who was coping because I'd always been told to, you know, butt my ideas up and be able to just cope. But really, you know, I was hiding things, hiding a lot of things, you know, long sleeves or saving up medication, headache pills and all sorts, which, you know, you could buy for 30 pence a packet. It it was trying to find any way of just relieving that tension, which I felt at the time. And, you know, one day things got too much. So I finished school, GCSEs, went on to college, And in college, it was totally different. I did like a business travel course because I thought, okay, I've got to do something in college because I can't give things away that I'm struggling. So I have to do something. So I did a level two business travel tourism. And I found that I wasn't so different after all. And it was quite hard to actually fit in now. I'd had, you know, 16 years of not fitting in. So then now immediately everyone wants to talk and I didn't know how to kind of cope. It's jarring, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, oh, hey, you're going to fit in here. Then you're not going to fit in. It feels so weird when you're given that love. It's so weird. It's it's like, oh, my God, the people who actually care on the outside of your family is like, oh, my God, there's actually a world who cares. It's great. It feels so weird having all this kind of love and everything. I couldn't hack it. I couldn't get used to it. And I thought, well, I can't live in a world which doesn't accept me. I can't live in a world which does accept me. So there's no point in me living, so to speak. 
did you ever think it was like i mean this is something that i definitely found when i got to sixth form and like you said like university and discovered all these people that were loving me for who i was and i didn't have to like change myself did you almost feel like a sense of like oh well, are they are they legit is it fake are you and you got this all this paranoia about it exactly yeah it was like are they faking this are they just doing this because that's what you have to do to get through the college, you know, group work and whatever. Or are they just putting this on so that they can get an A? Or are they actually being really genuine? And I couldn't tell the difference. And I think that's kind of where my autism lied because all the emotions I wasn't picking up on that other people had. Those little cues and stuff. Yeah, there were a lot of cues, although because being biologically female, it wasn't kind of picked up on. It was just seen as, oh, emotional, hormonal difficulties, you know, and all all that and not kind of seen as anything which could be an underlying condition. When you were kind of going through this period, what do you think helped you in either developing your social skills or what also do you think autism has has helped you develop in yourself as well because a lot of people see you know autism as this really a long-term health condition uh, a mental condition I should say which can be really hard for a lot of people in life and it's it's complete spectrum as to how challenging it can be for someone kind of it could be very very small or it can be very very extreme on, on a spectrum how has it helped you and how has it hindered you if that makes sense what helped me was actually going into hospital love to try and take my own life because I didn't actually get a lot of support in the hospital and I had primary nurse was great but unfortunately she I found out after I got out of hospital that she unfortunately took her own life but she was struggling with an eating disorder at the same time as helping us in the hospital so it was again it's catch 22 you know so that was quite kind of triggering and I saw people in there who I didn't want to as as much as they were fantastic inspiring people I never wanted to be back in somewhere like that again because the devastation you saw that extreme didn't you I saw people you know at the total ends of eight hours left to live kind of thing due to eating disorders and all kinds of different mental health kind of challenges and then I got diagnosed with autism outside of the hospital So what year was that? Oh, I was in hospital 2014, 17, 18. I was, yeah, I was just coming up to 19 because they had to keep me on. So relatively late then, really, for a diagnosis of autism. Yeah, I was on medication for bipolar, which they didn't think I actually had, but they had to put me on something. And then they said, oh, this is autism. And actually, it was the school on the site of a hospital. I mean, I walked in one day. It was the first day of the school in there. I walked in and I did my college course within like four hours. I completed literally everything I needed to complete. Just did it because <laughs> I was like, right, let's just do this. Get it done. You've been studied. <laughs> yeah, cram. <laughs> it's terrible now being a teacher. I would not recommend that. <laughs> and then I started to read about this random thing called Euler's theorem, which is like a X, Y, 10, all sorts and whatever. And the teacher's just, immediately picked up on that and they said oh okay this is a lot more advanced than you know I was doing like Oxford grade math I can't do math now I I can just about add up so (laughs) I can't do that anymore I can I can I'm a teacher and I can just about add up when you got that diagnosis pal what did you feel like in that moment was it relief was it was it fear was it elation you know what kind of emotions were kind of going through your head after all these years of kind of being told that you had x or you had y and you didn't really know what was going on so i felt absolutely over the moon that there was something there which wasn't just oh you know claudia is mad i just 
validation. Yeah, it was validation. And it was society is actually accepting that there is a condition out there. And because it's from the spectrum, I had the Asperger's side. Because I'm verbal, it didn't get picked up. Because I was able to express my emotions because there's a lot of stereotypes and stigmas around if you are autistic, you can't read emotions well, you can't, you know, it's you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that. You must be a specialist in one subject and that's it, even though I'm a specialist in Eurovision. The social side, I think, is a big stereotype. Yeah, the social side, because, you know, you can be, I'm an ambivert, you know, introvert and extrovert at the same time. You like your own space, but... You also love to be around people, but I never knew how to, you know, tap into those groups. I'd just go along and be on the sidelines, but I'd watch, I'd pick up these social cues, which people would do. You smile when you're happy. If you're angry, you do certain things. If you're sad, you cry and you pick up things from people based on those labels of emotions. But when I did get this diagnosis, I did feel like it was great, but I knew that there was something more. I knew that it wasn't just an autism spectrum kind of condition. I knew that there was something else. But again, no one believed me. So I thought, okay, that's fine. Let's go off to uni. Let's try. And now I've got this new label. Let's do something big. Let's move from this little town, move to central London, which was a big step after, you know, being diagnosed a month, six months before I was due to go up to London. Before we get to university, just quickly, pal, I want to just talk about your journey through into the hospital and through the hospital, because I want to talk about a really positive thing, which was a music tutor came in weekly and ran sessions with all the patients. And you talked about this in Vent articles and you've talked about it in other articles that you've written. Was this a moment that really changed your life and your recovery? And how important was it? I think the music which I was doing was very, very different. It was making soundscapes using my launch pad and you know, I'd bring in all of my tech and I'd sit there and just make stuff in order to describe what was going on in my head. And I think the music tutor, it wasn't just about singing along to a song on the karaoke or, you know, learning how to play a few chords. It was doing what you wanted to do and being able to express yourself in a safe way, not in a way which could be potentially self-destructive. And it was just so freeing to have that and to have someone who genuinely cared and someone who genuinely wanted to make a difference, but not for them, for us. And then they got the reward through it. Who was that person? If we can shout them out. Uh, I don't know their name. Oh, that's, well, I hope they live. I hope they listen to this and, and, and uh, can, can feel very good in themselves. Well, I know the company. It was um, Rhythmics, the company. Absolutely fantastic. Shout out Rhythmics. Woo! <laughs> and they run all, they run these weekly sessions for hospitals, inpatient, outpatient, and just in general for young people who have challenges, social barriers, or you know they go into prisons. They do young workshops, and they were just absolutely fantastic. It meant that when you were in that space, it didn't matter who you were, what you were, what you had, what you didn't have. It was about you expressing yourself in a safe place. And also being a bit crazy as well and having a bit of fun with it because it's like, oh, people with mental health conditions can't have fun. I have days when I'm absolutely happy as anything. You know, you have these really, really positive days, but there's always that underlying kind of depression or that underlying thing which holds you back. But I could just let go in this session, even if it's for an hour a week, hour every fortnight. It was something, not only as an escape, but a release of everything which I've been holding up during that week. You said in the article something really inspiring. 
You said, I realised I don't have to live up to society's expectations of what I am meant to be because of my diagnosis. I can create my own purpose. Just tell me a bit about what you meant by that. And also coming out of this really horrible experience in some ways, but also a very positive experience in some ways. What do you think you learned about yourself? I think I learned that I never want to be in a position again where I have to fight for my life in ways which it, it, it's so difficult to describe. But I think the best way of describing it is it's like the weather. You have good days, you have bad days. But at the end of the day, you can't have, what is it? Life's not about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. It's that kind of, in general, it's using what you have. And it's not being afraid of saying, actually, I have a neurodiversity and I have a mental health condition. It's kind of saying, this is who I am. I don't have all the answers and neither do does anyone in the world we've all got our own different perspectives so let's just try and do the best which we possibly can to kind of just get through life and live in a way which is just authentic before we talk about your non-binary journey let's go to university and that experience obviously you said you were feeling quite apprehensive because you had just been diagnosed with autism about six months before you moved and obviously university for everyone is I'm sure a very amazing experience and sometimes a very traumatic experience Uh, I probably had both do you want to just talk to me about what you experienced at university what it was like for you and, and and maybe what you got out of it for your mental health and this creative purpose that you now have so I did theatre tech at South Bank Uni which was such a multicultural and kind of diverse university, I thought, oh, there's bound to be people there who kind of get along with. There were four people on my course. Small. Yes, it, it was a brand new course. So it was a chance for me to create and do, me to kind of shape the course as I wanted it. Although the course is now cancelled, if anyone did want to go and do it. They've cancelled the course now, so you can't go and do it because of the such low numbers. <laughs> but anyway, another story. You know, I thought it's such a multicultural place, multi-diverse. You know, they had a really great societies, unions. I moved into halls, which was, I stupidly moved into the largest halls, the party block. Are you not a party person, Claudia? I mean, I lived at the back of Ministry of Sound, so, <laughs> you know. But me doing theatre tech anyway, I did lighting and sound and all that kind of stuff. So I was used to it. So I wanted at the end of the day to just go home and sleep and then to be told that, no, there's a rave party going on. Okay, see you later. I'll stay in bed because I've been dealing with lights and strobes for 18 hours today. The culture, I I think it was a culture shock to see everyone else at university who were doing such different courses. You know, you were mixed with people. It was in a flat of eight. Had my own ensuite, which was nice. That gave me that sense of privacy and the security, which I think I needed to have my own routine. And I got to work with the most amazing kind of people at uni. And through my diagnosis, I kind of said, look, I haven't given up. So let's try my best to not give up on the course and not give up on myself, even when things aren't going how I want it to go. So I enrolled on a load of extracurricular kind of projects and was lucky enough to be selected to go to Toronto to do this kind of work, live journalism, theatre kind of fusion events, which I created, you know, which were big hits out there and in London. And I got to do that twice because I said to myself, look, I can do whatever I want to do and become whoever I want to be. I don't have to, again, fit into society's norms. And through kind of creativity and creative arts I found that purpose 
And I think the big purpose is helping other people see that they can be creative too. Uh, every job requires some level of creativity, whether it be problem solving, strategic planning, conversations, communication, marketing. And there's so many things which can be creative. And I think if people spent a bit more time being open to the possibilities of creativity, I think they'd have a greater understanding of what it means to have autism or have a neurodiversity let's talk about your non-binary journey now there's a lot of confusion about this in society i've definitely made freudian slips with it for any listeners who don't know what it means just tell me what being non-binary is what pronouns you use and how you came to this moment of self-discovery wikipedia's i know i'm using wikipedia right now but (laughs) wikipedia's definition is non-binary or genderqueer is a spectrum of gender identities that are not exclusively masculine or feminine, identities that are outside the gender binary. So that's what Wikipedia says. But for me, I define my non-binary identity as I don't have a gender. I don't see myself as needing a gender. Sexuality is male, female, that's your biological kind of sense. Whereas how you feel on the inside and how you express yourself, that's my kind of identity and I don't express myself as either gender but some days I feel ultra masculine some days I feel ultra feminine you know but I tend to go towards the more masculine side rather than the feminine but that doesn't mean that I'm transgender it just means that that's the way which I find is the most authentic version of how I can express myself even though I'm born biologically female It doesn't mean that I have to do the female stereotypical tasks. And how old were you when you came out? Who was the first person you told and what was the general reaction to it? So I actually kind of came out or was questioning in my final year of university. I'd just been Shoreditch. So as you can probably tell, there was a lot of different kind of identities in Shoreditch. And I think the first person I told was one of my flatmates, I think, who just listened and that was great you know not having someone who judged or whatever and then I told the people in the drama course and the uni course it was nerve-wracking because at the time it was such a new thing well it wasn't a new thing because non-binary people have always been around but it was such a new kind of label or term which was coming to the forefront with you know Sam Smith and Jonathan Van Ness and all of these kind of other celebrities who identify as non-binary. So I think for me, I could kind of say, well, I'm like Sam Smith. I don't necessarily see myself as having a gender. And I think having that thing to relate to kind of helped. Having someone or a figure or some kind of tangible example, I hate to say example, but you know kind of what I mean, something there which people could relate to and kind of figure out. But I say to people, I don't have all the answers. I'm still questioning my own identity and coming across you know, new terms and new ways to express myself all the time. So I'm leaning towards a gender, which doesn't mean that I necessarily have a gender, which is under that kind of gender queer spectrum. But I say to people, this is just how I identify. And I think everyone was so fantastic with that. They were just like, well, we just see you as Claudia. That's what I've been told. You know, we just see you as the person who you are not what you're not or not what you're trying to be we just see you as claudia and you're a generally all right person so that's good so it helps the listeners claudia sometimes you know obviously the way someone might dress if they are non-binary might be quite 
naturally androgynous or vague, if that makes sense. And someone might look at someone and go, hmm, I don't know if they fit into a male or female or non-binary. And they might not know the right language to identify that or clarify that with that person. How would you say, from your experience, the listeners can do that? So I use they, them pronouns, um, which a lot of other non-binary people use as well. But some also use Ziza, he, him, she, her, and some fluctuate as well. So I think it's best, if you are unsure, to just ask. But don't be pushy about asking with it, as in don't expect an answer as if that person has to or immediately kind of can tell you because it's all about that person opening up their safe space to let you in and tell you how they identify I think a lot of the time we get into our head and naturally I mean I do it as well you know if we see someone walking down the street we say oh she looks nice or he looks nice how do we know that that is their gender identity I think a lot a lot of the times for those who are non-binary leaning towards the more masculine kind of sides or the adrenaline can't say the word but you know what I mean adrenaline androgynous that word that one (laughs) those who lean towards that do look more masculine a lot of people who I've met feel and think that we're trying to change our gender we're trying to be transgender I've had that a lot could you talk about some of the stigma and discrimination that you've felt as a or experienced as a non-binary person? I'm sure there's been a lot of discrimination you've experienced outside the LGBT community, but have you even experienced some within it as well? Because we should make clear that the LGBT community is not a monolith. No, I have actually experienced it a lot. You know, I went to Brighton Pride about three, four years ago, something. That's the most LGBT place you can go. Exactly. I mean, come on, Br- but, but Brighton as well. Is- I can say that because I went to uni there, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, people think it's LGBT. There's no adding on the alphabet, for example. That That's something which I get all the time, you know, is are you just trying to add on other letters in order to fit? No, it's LGBT. Even though non-binary comes under the umbrella of transgender because it is a different gender. That doesn't necessarily mean that everyone in the LGBT community knows what things are. I don't know what everything is, you know, and even though, you know, I should know more, which I do every day, I look and I see what different identities there are, how people identify and do research on it. I talk to people. A lot of the time it's very, very binary in terms of, look, you're LGBT, that's it. There's nothing else, you know, or if you're bisexual, you're picky. But for me, I am asexual. Do you want to explain what that means to the listeners? So I don't have any romantic or sexual attraction to anyone and that's just how I am I can't change that people look good looking yes because we all you know like if you see someone you're like oh they're dressed nicely or whatever you know but I don't have any kind of oh I'm gonna go on tinder there's no desire there yeah there's no desire and I think that goes hand in hand with my non-binary identity as well the fact which I am just a person who loves other people in a platonic kind of way I don't see myself as having a relationship. I see myself as oxymoron coming here. I see myself as someone who doesn't want a relationship, but I want a relationship with everyone who I come in contact with in terms of a platonic, you know, being friends, but nothing more than that. You know, the people who have always got your back, but nothing to a sexual romantic level. In your event article, pal, you talk about your love for coffee, 
and how it fuels your creativity. Do you want to just tell me about that and how it benefits your mental health? And then we can also talk about the decision you made to recently quit drinking as well. For me, the coffee shops kind of came into it through really when I moved up to London, but more in terms of I've now got this diagnosis. I'd seen autism and I'd been picking up on people's you know, social cues or whatever, being out in busy places, but being able to sit in the coffee shop and just watch people. People watching is my favourite thing. I love people watching. I love people watching. It's great. So that's kind of why I went into coffee shops as well. Also, I'd go into coffee shops because I could get work done, sat around other people who were equally doing work as well. I like my own space, but I find that I'm a lot more productive when I work outside. And I think that's... This might be quite cliche, but it's because the attention's there. Not in that sense of I'm attention-seeking, but in terms of there's actually someone with autism out doing something. You know, I don't have to stay inside all the time. I can go out and I can do things. I can work independently without having someone over my shoulder or having carers around me 24-7. You don't have to hide. Exactly. I don't have to hide away. So that's kind of how I started coffee shops. And there's so many in London. So I used to literally, I think I went to so many. I do coffee shop halls. I did one in Toronto, a coffee shop hall, and that was great. Six coffee shops in two hours. That was great. Do you want to just talk about your decision to quit drinking as well and how that's impacted your mental health? What impact did it have in the short term and why did you make that decision? So I think for me, I saw it as a self-destructive behaviour. In uni, it was one of those things which I was always egged on to do. I was terrible at card games because of my chronic pain and my hypermobility. I couldn't pick up the cards. Some people were like, oh, just drink, just drink. So I said, okay, down a bottle of gin like that, man. They were like, what? I was like, well, you said to do it. I take things literally. Downside of autism, you do take things literally. And I just, I, I found myself in an environment which I, I didn't want to be someone who, I didn't drink very much, but I found myself every time I did, I was like, why am I doing this? Why am I putting myself through this for other people's satisfaction in order to fit in? Especially because I've recently... Mm, you're playing up to it. Yeah. Well, I was off medication at the time, but I recently just have started back on some medication. And I feel like, well, pick one poison, you know. I don't want to pick too many things. I'd rather just have a nice coffee and go out and enjoy myself and remember what happened that day. Rather than, with me, it would be the extremes, not just one drink. It would be going out and having a massive, massive 200 quid later kind of thing, checking your bank. Oh, dear. I didn't want that. I think especially in my profession as well now, what I enjoy doing, I didn't want to be someone who goes out and does things which... Recklessness. Yeah, I think that's the best way of describing it. I like a beer, but I've discovered non-alcoholic beers now. Brewdog is amazing. Love a good Brewdog. But there's so many other options out there as well. On medication, it helps. One video I saw you post on social media recently was when you went in the sea and you alluded to your body confidence. Could you just talk a little bit about that, if you could, and how it's affected your life? So I think for me and my body confidence, I've always struggled with it. I think having a chronic pain condition as well makes me more nervous about what my body should conform to, especially being non-binary. You know, non-binary, I haven't gone through any kind of transitions or anything. And even though I'd love to, it's just not an option right now due to money and due to a bit of everything. If someone's got 20 grand, one of those listeners, you can always donate. <laughs> but I 
just thought, sod it, let's just go in the sea and let's just have a good time. And no one cared. I didn't care at that time because I was just a human. I had fun. I allowed myself to have fun, which is something which I don't often do. I don't let myself have that time to feel confident and to feel as if I can go out. Usually I'd wear a t-shirt over things, but I thought, you know what? No, I'm just going to go in the sea and do something spontaneous. And I think for me, body confidence does come in those spontaneous kind of decisions. It manifests itself in so many different ways, body confidence. It can be in my hair. I've cut my hair short because I had such long hair. That really kind of set the body confidence off for me. I was my own person. I wasn't tied down by any any notions of having a gender. I think body confidence does take a, a long time to get used to, you know, and we all look in the mirror and say, oh, I'm not good enough. I need to be thinner or I need to put them away or I need to be taller or whatever. And that's fine to think that because that gives you those goals. But it's knowing when a goal becomes self-destructive and unhealthy, or whether it's something positive which you can work towards. But I think for me, body confidence is... I still struggle with it, but on some days I can go out and have the best time and not worry about what I dress, and that's fantastic. Given all you've been through, Claudia, knowing what you do now, if you could go back and talk to that 17-year-old Claudia, what do you think you would say? Don't give a shit what anyone else thinks. I think is the best way of saying it because I think at the time you were confused. You were in this state where you didn't know what was happening. You knew that you had these diagnoses, but you didn't know that you could be anything but those diagnoses. You thought that you were confined to them and that was your life forever. You can be creative. You can go out and do what you want to do and you can make a life out of it. You can make a career. You can make friends. You can build up a community. You don't have to face it alone, but you can be alone sometimes. I think that's kind of what I'd say. And I'd say, you know, you don't have to have all the answers yet. So yeah, I think that's what I'd say. We've talked about your journey, Claudia. Let's talk about the next stage of your journey into becoming a mental health advocate, although I don't really like the term advocate sometimes. How did this journey start? You know, who was the first person you told about your story or perhaps the first article you wrote and what impact did it have on you when it was published? I think the first thing I did was actually go to that Mad Millennials event. I think that was one of the first things which I did. I saw it the day before and I thought, oh, shall I go? Shall I? Shall I not? Shall I do it? And I thought, no, do it. And the spontaneous kind of turned out to be so amazing because it was just surrounded by people who were so positive and I felt as if I actually belonged somewhere. You know, like There were so many different people in that room. There were so many diverse speakers and people coming along. And I think that then inspired me to write blog posts and to have my own creative space to share what I was feeling I think living in London definitely meant that I could share more with people I could sit in a coffee shop and start chatting to someone and we could chat about whatever and then they would say oh you don't look autistic or you don't look this and I'd say well what does an interpretation of autism look like or what does someone with depression or OCD look like and they said oh good point exactly you know it's there's no one face there's no one stigma attached there's no one stereotype of what mental health 
or what autism kind of is. And I think going along to that event really showed me that. It wasn't like being back in the hospital again, where you were surrounded by people who were all the same. The extremes again. Yeah, it was, I, I kind of felt normal for the first time. I felt as if I was, we're all normal, but we're all mad. We're all together in this. And then that inspired me to then say, actually, I can do more and I can do more not only for me, but for others as well. And that's kind of where the advocacy came in. I actually agree with the word advocacy. I'm not too fond of it sometimes because you can be advocating for someone who, you know, doesn't necessarily either need or want to be advocated for. But I think I try and just share my experiences. And I always, always say in my articles or in, you know, podcasts that it's just what I feel. This is my experience. And I can't talk for anyone else you know, even though there might be people who can relate to exactly what I'm going through, you know, or have exactly the same story or whatever, we all have different lives, different backgrounds, different reasons, and different identities. So I think going along to as many events as possible kind of really helped me. And it helped me to actually get talking as well to people, get talking to people of different ages and different nationalities, just the world in general, helped me to kind of open up those channels. How have you grown as a public speaker on this journey, you know, what have been some of your favourite gigs in inverted commas? You know, has there been one where you got a bit of inspiring feedback from an audience member or even a DM on social media afterwards? And what impact did that have on you? One of my favourite things which I went and did was, it was at Are We OK UK, which is run by Dan Keely. Absolutely fantastic event where you could just talk so freely. And I had some life coaching there, two sessions which was great. And at the end of the day, there was a five minute share your story. I was scared and I didn't want to do it. But then, you know, dad came up to me and said, do you want to do it? And I was like, okay. So I did it and it was great. And after that, I met so many more people through that. And, you know, I was one of the youngest there as well. So it was kind of more daunting for me at that point. But I think that was one of the main events, which I found myself really, really proud of my identity because I knew that this was a safe space it was somewhere which I could totally be myself and not be judged for that but be judged based on what I was giving out to people and sharing you started your own podcast called Spectrum last year now you've only put out two episodes but they're both great I did listen to them why did you want to start it what did you want to achieve with it and do you plan to restart it a bit now that we're in a sort of new normal So I started it really for my kind of theatre media kind of side because I just purchased a bit of equipment and I thought, oh, let's have a go at doing something which will give a purpose to not only me to learn some new skills, but to other people as well, to invite them to come on the podcast and just be real. We can just chat. Although I only had two episodes, I would love to start it back up again, but I feel like I need to be in the right headspace to do that. You know, it's it's so important that we put ourselves first in these situations and we know that we need the time to prepare mentally. Like I got 12 hours sleep last night, I think, ahead of this, which was good. It's rare for me, but it was good to have a good night's sleep and prepare. I think the podcast will pick up. I'm just not in a place right now where I can honestly say that I have the mental capacity to do it. Because it does take a lot out of you. It's not just the editing of things, it's the conversation, it's the listening, it's the it's the emotional side of things. 
like afterwards you just need to go whoa what just happened here and have a total like a detox from it looking forward now mate what do you want to achieve with these skills you developed as a public speaker through the podcast and help more people through your experiences so I think now kind of looking forward I focus a lot on young people who are going through situations which are potentially life-changing for them, which is kind of why I was inspired to go on this teaching journey, but more of a role model to others rather than a mentor, so to speak. I have such a keen interest in helping people to use their own skills, which they've already got, and to make something of themselves which they never thought possible. So it could be anything. I think I definitely need to be back up in London. I think that for me is where I see myself, just because there's a broader scope to do things. There's a lot more opportunities and a lot more opportunities for people watching as well. But I think my future is to just continue to raise awareness in whatever way I can, whether that be commenting on social media articles or things or writing or blogging or I've I've been doing a lot of university preparing students for for you know their identity and having a disability. I've been helping a lot with that more recently. So I think it's just carrying on on that journey of knowing that I am actually good at what I do as well. Because I always feel like oh once I've done something I've done like a terrible job. But then you get that satisfaction after you walk out and you feel like actually even if I've impacted one person it's all worth it. And that one person can be you as well. Even if there's no one else in the room who hears it or takes it in you've still impacted someone and that someone is yourself because you've gone out there you've done it which it takes a lot of guts to stand up in front of a room and share things and I don't share everything you know because there's certain things which you just can't go to that point mentally to share and that's okay that's totally okay and I think over the time over the future I've been discovering that more and more that it's okay to hold back and it's okay to give yourself that time to work through things before you go on and you speak One topic I wanted to talk to you about is your theatre work, Claudia. Now, you are a self-described theatre artist and you did your degree, as we previously said, in theatre technologies. Just tell me a bit about this evolving into a theatre artist and performing your own right and how you would describe yourself and what joy it gives you for your mental health. So I think theatre has so many different possibilities. It's not just standing on the stage and singing or dancing. Some people think that, though. Yeah, well, it's the backstage as well. And that's where I really found myself, was knowing that I could still create things, but not be in the limelight. I can't dance, I'm terrible. I love the fact which theatre, you, you can pick up on those social cues, but on the fake social cues, which are kind of created in space. I think for me, my theatre is more along the lines of very experimental. It's more performance art, which gives me a time to kind of advocate on the outside so I can create something using technology and almost become a cyborg kind of nature in terms of not going all robotic futuristic, but I can just be a body on a stage. I don't have to have a gender or a purpose or a certain sexuality or even a character. You can just perform something using, you know, through technology because technology is not gendered. Technology doesn't, you know, you don't have a female Mac or, you know, a male lantern. (laughs) You know, you just have the stage. And I think a lot of the time I don't do things necessarily 
on stage, I do break boundaries. For one of my performance pieces, I was working with a group and we did some physical theatre. I don't have any classical acting training or on stage training, but through that, I learned so much about what it means to be an artist and a performer. But a performer in my own right, I can go on stage and I can do things which no one else can do. And if for me, it's about breaking those boundaries of what is possible. And I think I've always been like that, especially being autistic and having mental health challenges and being non-binary and all, all of these diagnoses and labels which society puts on you on the stage can just completely vanish because you can be your own person. Just on that, when you are on the stage or behind the stage what is that feeling like is it escapism is it a safe haven or a bit of both maybe or something completely different I think for me it's more of a purpose I know that that is where I belong I know that that is a safe space yeah so it it is like a haven it is like a retreat but it's also a chance for such a massive self-expression as well even if you have five ten audience it's something which you can share and why do you think it's important for not just people with mental health conditions, but for everyone who has mental health to find creative outlets like this that they enjoy? I think it's so important because you don't have to be the next Vincent van Gogh. You don't have to be this famous person to enjoy it. Because people think that with fame comes enjoyment and then you've got the money and all the attention and celebrity and all, all that, you know, living the lifestyle. You don't have to do that. Creativity can come in so many forms. It can come in taking a walk and taking a creative route. It can be painting, it can be reading, it can be making your own scene in like a mindfulness meditation finding an outlet somewhere which you belong is so important you might not belong fully and that's okay but it's somewhere which you can go which is a safe outlet a safe place whether that be like going to gigs or whatever it it can be something you can treat yourself with as well you can go and you can just enjoy being who you are and enjoy the company enjoy what's around you and actually know that when you walk out of there you can say actually I've had a really good time and I'm allowed to feel that I've had a good time those good feelings are valid and they're not you know as if I don't deserve to do this again creativity is something which I think everyone has inside them and it just needs to be tapped into and it's about trying new things with it Our final topic of conversation, Claudia, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, circumstances including or excluding new normal or not new normal. How is your mental health at the moment? I think my mental health is so adaptive. I've just managed to adapt in the best way I can to the new normal, not normal, this crazy world we live in. And if you felt comfortable saying what mental health issues or conditions do you live with and how do they affect you in your day to day life? So I live with... Asperger's syndrome, which is under the autism spectrum, OCD, bulimic tendencies, depression, anxiety, fibromyalgia, hypermobility. I think that's it. (laughs) Just a few. (laughs) (laughs) Just a few. Just seven. And what age do you think you were when you first realised that these feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? Probably from about the ages of four, five or six. So as early as that? Yeah. So when I started to actually make decisions for myself, I think that was kind of when. But I guess truly, maybe when I was about eight or nine, when I was kind of knowing that I was more different in a way. So you became self-aware? Yeah, self-aware. And when you had that first conversation about your mental health with someone, did you feel like a part of you had changed? Was it a massive weight off your shoulder? Or did it feel fairly insignificant? I think for me, it felt like it was a point of no hope. 
in a way because I was just put down when I said that I had something. Mm, you were gaslit. Yeah, I was basically just said, that's it then, go fix yourself or go and do whatever you want to do because we can't help you, which was quite shocking. But at the time, I thought this is going to make me work even harder to actually prove those people wrong now, 15, 20 years in the future. I've talked about this on my own podcast episode, Claudia, where because I was being bullied and because I had similar experiences to you when I was gaslit originally for when I talked about my mental health, you know, or expressed emotions, you know, in a, in a public setting, that I had this same sort of prove people wrong attitude. And I don't think I have it as much anymore because I think I began to see it as an unhealthy thing, whereas I was focusing energy on other people that didn't matter to me anymore. But did you feel like you had that mindset developed in you? Because I saw it as this way of, well, this is the only way I'm getting through it. This is the only way I'm surviving. It was a surviving tool. That's kind of what I felt as well. Exactly like that. And now I see it as I'm now proving to myself wrong. You're proving yourself right. Yeah, I'm proving, yeah, I'm proving myself right. Yeah, I don't have to, you know, people are saying to me, oh, you should go back into the school and you should say how much you've changed and all sorts I'm like, really, would they actually listen to that? You know, I don't think they would pay that much attention to that. You know, I think it's very easy to judge and say things very, very quickly. But I think we need to understand that we can be who we want to be without having to prove too many people wrong. We can prove ourselves right. And what triggers do you have in life that affect your mental health? Or have you not figured all of them out yet? So for me, biggest trigger is when people don't want to understand things. I think, you know, I'm more than happy to sit down with people and explain things to them, give them all the time of day if they're willing to accept it. You know, they might not necessarily understand everything and neither do I. But I think that's one of the biggest triggers when people say, oh, I don't want to understand this because I'm scared of this, that and the other. And I think another one of the big triggers is the whole LGBT community and the whole non-binary is being seen as a craze or a phase at the moment. When actually, if you look back through history, it's been there for hundreds, thousands of years. So they're two of the biggest triggers. And what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? You know, which ones have you found that have worked and which ones that haven't? I think now I see medication as something which can help. I think in the past I was put on medication for bipolar for two and a half years, totally drugged up on it. I didn't actually have that diagnosis. But now I see the medication which I take as just being a way of numbing it slightly, giving me a slightly clearer head. It's not much which I take, but it's still enough to help me live life and see things a little bit more clearly than what I would without. And there's no shame in that. There's no shame in medication, if that helps. I think another big thing is just being open to different possibilities and not being afraid of those different possibilities in life. We spoke off air, pal, about productivity and it being a big thing that helps us with our mental health. Sometimes we go a bit too far because being bored is so dangerous for us. Tell the listeners about how that idea of productivity affects you and maybe why it's important for our mental health that we stay productive. So I think productivity is so important, not only in the fact which you can get stuff done, but in the fact which it gives you a purpose for the day. So even if it's something very, very, very small, you know that you've achieved something. So sometimes I go out and I buy one thing, it might just be a cleaning sponge or I don't know, a pen. It's, it's going out and you're doing something on that day. It could be reading a chapter of a book, it could be cleaning your shoes I don't I don't know it could be anything having something productive to do in a day makes you feel as if you've achieved something even if you feel absolutely terrible it's knowing that your small action helped you cope with 
daily life. And I work so hard, but I always give myself that time after productivity, which is so important to just chill. And just finally, pal, I've really loved this pod and I think it will help so many people. Why do you think it's important for everyone, men, boys, women, girls, everyone who's non-binary, to feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health? We're all born with a brain. We're all born with a body. We're all born as humans who just have to get through life the best way we can. If you've got mental health, you've got mental health. If you've got, you know, a gender which is different, you've got a gender which is different. If you've got challenges, you've got challenges. We're all humans at the end of the day and we all have to be kind to each other and just try and get through life the best way we can. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Claudia for being my special guest on this episode's pod. As always, thank you to all the vendors who tuned in. If you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels, tell your friends or work colleagues about it, or if you're feeling very, very generous, write us a review on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. Thank you.